0: Welcome back to Case of the Sunday Scaries. I'm Elise And I'm Annie. And I'm not going to do our normal
1: banter back and forth. We're diving right in. Let's go. I
0: have been so excited to talk to Annie about this case. I need to apologize to my coworkers who have heard about it extensively for the past two weeks because I've been trying my best not to give anything away to Annie because it's just unbelievable. When I first heard about this man's interview on the Impact Theory podcast... I'll link it in the show notes. You guys got to watch it. It's incredible. I immediately put aside the case I was working on and had to do a deep dive because this man was so inspiring to me. And it's one that really ties in well to Black History Month as it shows the corruption as a country in our legal system and the systemic problems and prejudice that Black people, men and women face daily. But it's also a story of overcoming all adversity in the most profound way. So listeners, I know some of you write, I read your Instagram DMs, that you want to listen support the podcast. Thank you. I appreciate it. But some of you say, unfortunately, I can't listen to these kind of cases. I'm going to be up all night. I'm going to have nightmares. We get it. Your mental health is more important than anything else. So a lot of you have asked me, can you let me know, I actually have a little list going, that I let people know, my mom included, when she can listen to a case because it doesn't have a murder involved. So, guys, this is an episode for you. I'm going to be really cheesy here. The only trigger warning I have is actually like an inspiration warning. Oh, plot twist. Right. I will tell you that this story, if you are anything like me, it is going to move you to really evaluate the dark times in your own life and very quickly put them into perspective. And you'll want to be like standing up for justice, for your happiness, for a cause that's something that matters to you and to truly live up to your potential. You know those posters in high school where I have like an iceberg, right? And it's like, you can move mountains or
1: some cheesy thing. I know I sound like that right now, but you'll understand why when I get into this case. What a great episode to start off 2023 with too. Do a little uh, New Year's resolution, make some goals, love ourselves.
0: Yeah. For a bit, you might also have to reevaluate your life and go, what am I doing here? (laughs) Because I finished this case and went, wow, I could be doing more. So that's my trigger warning. You might feel overly inspired
1: to take on your dreams. Trigger by warning. I do amazing things after listening to this podcast. Yeah,
0: consider <laughs> yourself warned, listeners. This case truly has it all a corrupt legal system, a young black man with every possible reason to give up when the system, as it often does, failed him, but with every single odd stacked against him, when no one else seemed to want to believe in him or believe him in general. He comes back and is the hero to not only himself, but others facing the same predicament he found himself in. There is an incredibly extensive list of resources for today's case, but I relied the most heavily on the book, Marked for Life, One Man's Fight for Justice. I told Annie that she wasn't allowed to download it yet. It's in my Amazon cart. I will download it. I listened to it on Audible. It is an unbelievable book. It is written by the man that we are going to be talking about today. Obviously, his book is going to go into far greater detail than I ever could on just one episode of this podcast. If you want to know all the ins and outs, please, guys, listen to this book. I actually made the mistake, like I said, of listening to this on Audible. It's also read by the author. And Annie knows this about me after we've been doing this so long. I don't know what to do with the emotion of anger. So what do I do? I just start crying. Yeah, and shaking. (laughs) Yep. My body just says, nope, this can't live here. We don't like this emotion. And then I just bubble it out in tears and the racial prejudice and description of his experience made me so angry that I was a little late for work because I was crying in my car. It is beautifully written and just goes into great detail. So I will link that book below. I highly, highly recommend it. Today we're going to be talking about the truly unbelievable story of Isaac Wright Jr. Isaac Wright Jr. was born January 23, 1962, to parents Sandra and Isaac Wright Sr. Isaac's dad was in the military. So, of course, they traveled all over the U.S. and abroad, anywhere that he happened to be stationed at the time. They had six children. And so when his dad was working, poor Sandra was being a mom, running the household. I mean, that's a lot that's of kids. That's a time career right there. Yeah, Absolutely. Isaac describes his parents as incredibly loving. His dad was strict and regimented, exactly what you'd expect from someone in the military, but in a way that encouraged their successes and earned him a lot of respect from his children. So it wasn't like he was regimented and strict to the point of... Kind of being an asshole. Yeah. He wanted them up at a certain time. They were going to go get things he expected a lot out of his children. Moving around, obviously, all the time was pretty difficult. You're always the new kid. But it seems the siblings really relied on each other for entertainment. They kind of adopted that hoorah, the military oh, thing, and they'd it. all the siblings would put their arms around each other and like start their day that's saying so that. Cute. I'm just picturing like all their little, I don't know, like in Six like their them. Superman
1: robes, yeah. like waking up in the morning, and be like hoorah. <laughs> oh, that's such a fun. That's such a fun vision. That's adorable.
0: Yeah, they really relied on each other for entertainment. It was not until they moved to Alabama that Isaac felt the color of his skin was so outwardly detested. He got into an altercation, probably on the playground, but at school for another child saying that his skin was, well, the color of feces. Let's just put it that way. Kids are brutal and horrible. Yeah, He remembers the teachers not punishing the boy for what the little boy had said. He had, of course, experienced racism, but it was not until that school ground altercation that he realized not only was he different, but that people in control, the people in places he was supposed to respect, were only tolerating him
1: at best. That's a really sad thought for someone who's that young, you know. In
0: the 1980s, Isaac was living in New York, really struggling to make ends meet. But hip-hop was on the rise at the time, and Isaac was a very talented dancer, So he and two friends formed a breakdance trio, and they got invited to Star Search. Do you know what Star Search is? I don't. Okay. (laughs) Is it like like,
1: America's Got Talent?
0: Yeah. Very similar, like American Idol. Yeah, I would say more like America's Got Talent. Yeah, because it wasn't just singing. Britney Spears, Dave Chappelle, like they all got their start there. Oh, very cool. And the way it kind of worked, if I remember correctly, is whoever won, it's almost like Jeopardy, where if you win one week, you go on to the next week to compete against the new people, if I remember correctly. He was actually on Star Search a few times, and they were pretty successful on the show, gaining the attention of some pretty notable names in hip-hop, you know, like Run DMC. Oh. Just casual. Very casual. (laughs) They actually started opening for artists and going on tours all over the country with them. If you're going to learn anything from this episode about Isaac, know this. Isaac never let an opportunity pass him by. As he toured, he saw the inner workings of the music industry, and he ended up starting to manage artists on his own. He created his own record company with his young wife, Sunshine. What a name. I know. Sunshine. And her vocal band that she was in, it was a, like, I think it was a trio, and they were called The Cover Girls. But they also were putting out platinum records, and he was the one managing their career. She kind of around this time broken out and wanted to do her own thing with her music as well. He was on the rise financially. He had gone from being pretty much broke, doing odd jobs, to a man that was noticed. He remembered in his book that he had multiple cars, a nice home they'd recently moved into in New Jersey to give their daughter an environment she could thrive in instead of like being in downtown Manhattan. His wife was dripping in jewelry and furs, and he had diamond-encrusted cowboy boots. He is living the dream. Well... I had to check because I'm thinking like bedazzled cowboy That's boots. That's what I'm thinking. Nope. actual diamond encrusted cowboy boots that he said he was the only one in the hip hop scene that could pull it off. And I kind of laughed at that because when I think of hip hop and the fashion, diamond encrusted cowboy boots are not part They're of it. They're the last on the
1: list. Yeah. This man's like walking into a room with a disco ball and just his <laughs> there's just light shooting out of his feet.
0: <laughs> yeah. he you was can't be- miss him. <laughs> he was noticed. Throughout this time, though, Isaac remained focused not only on his success, but his home life with his wife and young daughter. Even though doors were opening for him, he was hobnobbing and partying with artists. And that lifestyle, obviously, you get some access to some big players in the drug and nightlife scenes. But Isaac said because of what he had seen when he was younger, he realized that people were doing what they could. And even if it was illegal, he just tried to get to know people for who they were and minded his own business when it came to their... Extracurriculars, let's say. He had a legitimate business. He was on his way up. And so, why compromise all of that by getting too involved with the wrong people who could cause everything that he worked for, not to mention his family, to be taken away in an instant if he got into trouble? Unfortunately for Isaac, he would end up trusting the wrong people. And realize that when the system is rigged against you, when law enforcement and a judicial system can see the color of your skin and assume your character based on it, then everything you've worked for could be gone in an instant. In New York during this time, crack cocaine was a huge problem. Having never messed with the stuff myself, thankfully, <laughs> I wanted to understand how it became such a big problem because it seems like it wasn't around and then it just exploded onto the scene. In 1985, Coke dealers took expensive powdered cocaine, the stuff that we see in movies, we all know what it looks like, but they would mix it with baking soda and water, and that was then boiled down into a mixture until it formed little crystal pellets that could be smoked. So now $1,000 worth of cocaine powder could be made into 280 vials of crack that could be sold for $10 a pop, making the dealers $1,800 on their $1,000 investment. Wow, that's a lot. It's Absolutely. doubling it. Really? So drug dealers could do this method, boil it down, and then all of a sudden, they're not just selling to the rich, anymore, right, that have disposable money for or, you know, have already developed a habit for cocaine. They can sell it in these poorer neighborhoods. $10 a pop, it's just crazy. But here's the bad news. Well, all of this is bad, but here's the worst news. Crack vapor hits the brain in about five seconds. So you have this crazy euphoric release. But it's only going to last about 10 minutes. Making you want more. Exactly. Then you need another hit to get back to where you were, if not more after a while. And people were desperate for their next hit. By 1988, just three years after crack cocaine was introduced in New York, 40% of murders in New York were drug-related. This is three years, guys. Domestic violence was up over 150%. And more than 5,000 babies were born with severe problems and addictions because of their addicted mothers. Desperate women took to the streets to find Johns to trade their bodies for their next hit. People stopped reporting robberies and petty crimes because they knew the police force was so overrun with this epidemic and the destruction it was causing that they knew the police weren't even going to come.
1: Wow, that's so sad and so dangerous. Right. You can tell how things went from zero to 100 real quick.
0: Well, right. And you think like, okay, if people aren't calling to report it, it's not just the people that are having these crimes done to them that aren't reporting it and know this information. You're like everyday robber guy is also going to know that the police aren't going to come. So things quickly quickly escalated the head of the police anti-crack unit kept a running total of arrests that they made in 25 months they arrested over 13,200 crack dealers not users dealers well
1: Anne, think about in terms of like mileage they're probably all fighting for territory that's a lot of people who want to be number one. I'm trying to picture it because I think of
0: New York now, and I'm like, oh, you know, the ice skating and Rockefeller and, you know, Time windows Square. at Christmas yeah. and Times Square and the lights. And then you read it and he's like, you couldn't walk down the sidewalk without seeing these vials that were used for crack cocaine. They were just absolutely everywhere. Now you walk down New York, you're going to step on trash or cigarette butts or whatever the case. And he kind of compared it to that, like they were absolutely just littered on the street.
1: That's a piece of history I've never learned. <laughs> I can't even imagine. I can picture it, though. If you think, crack vapor
0: only lasts about 10 minutes. There's 24 hours of the day. So obviously, there's going to be all these empty vials everywhere because everyone's just constantly looking for their next release. And that release only
1: lasts 10 minutes. And it only costs
0: $10. Obviously, New York was in a state of turmoil, to say the very least. And the legislative response to this epidemic, well... We need tougher laws. Scare the crap out of people that are dealing the crack. In their rushed response, legislation passed the kingpin law. I was trying to make sense of all this legal jargon. I know one thing in life. I was not meant to be a lawyer because it was
1: very confusing. (laughs) No, I feel like after this episode, I'm going to pull a Pete Davidson and get like my co-host is a lawyer, (laughs) like tatted on my bicep. (laughs) It was a lot
0: because you read not even a full sentence and then it refers you to a different case that you have to go look up and it's just this constant back and forth. So my hat's off to lawyers because that that stuff's confusing. But to put it plainly, under the kingpin statute, a person is a leader of a narcotics trafficking network if he conspires with others as an organizer, supervisor, financier, or manager to engage for profit in a scheme or course of conduct to unlawfully manufacture, distribute, dispense, or bring into or transfer any controlled, dangerous, scheduled one or two substances. So we're talking like hard narcotics here. Upon conviction, a person has to be sentenced to a life imprisonment during which they are not eligible for parole for 25 years.
1: Wow, they're hitting everyone. Like if you're even semi-involved in this, because you talked about even the financiers. So, the
0: kingpin is the top of the top. So, they need to have people saying, yes, this is the boss. This is the head person.
1: Are they trying to get those lower people to rat them out?
0: Just wait. Okay. The biggest thing, though, I think they were trying to say, like, we're going to set this precedent that if we get you and you're part of this underground system of getting those drugs into New York, we are going to put you away forever in hopes that other people are watching this and going, okay, we... We don't want to mess with that. We're done. Right. Because this isn't like a three strikes you're out policy. If you get arrested under this statute and you're convicted of kingpin, no matter what, life imprisonment, 25 years minimum. And obviously, if if you're getting arrested for a kingpin statute, you probably have 500 other things you're getting arrested for, like little petty crimes underneath that's going to tack onto that. It's basically a life sentence.
1: Wow, that's harsh. I mean, I get why. Right. No other choice, really, but I'd stay far away from all that. Yeah,
0: no, thank you. Well, we'll stay in this room. I'm not going to be drug dealing. (laughs) Although I did get some crumble cookies today that I will share if you ask nicely. I definitely
1: (laughs) need a crumble cookie.
0: (laughs) Unfortunately, in their haste to get these bigwig drug dealers off the streets and have laws and consequences that would hopefully scare people out of dealing, they really did not do their due diligence in writing the law. One of the main things I want you all to know is that the problem here was you didn't have to have that much evidence for conviction. They simply could take the word of other witnesses or those convicted alongside the quote-unquote kingpin. He's the boss. Any underlings, if you will, could be, like you said, potentially turned on him for lesser sentences.
1: That can get real sticky. It's all
0: hearsay. Mm -hmm. There is a reason in, let's say, a murder trial, they're going to get as much physical evidence that in theory can't be compromised, right? It's not as subject to human error. That's why they say eyewitnesses and murders and stuff. A lot of times they don't even have them go up on the stand because you don't know. Maybe they saw something. They come with their own biases, prejudice, all that kind of stuff. But when you think that these other people who are testifying are most likely themselves facing jail time, it opens it up to what in the world would people not do to get a
1: lesser sentence? And reasonably so. A full game of Who Done It, And it wasn't me, but it was him. And it's like everyone turning on each other. Unfortunately, Isaac Wright Jr.,
0: despite never dealing drugs or having a history or personal use with drugs, would be the first man charged in the state of New Jersey under the new kingpin law. A law like that, again, carried a mandatory life sentence. So how did this happen?
1: Yeah, I'm like, how did our boot scootin', <laughs> boot scootin boogie son, sunshine's husband get involved in this? It's a long and twisted
0: story. There is so many elements to trying to figure out who did what, who said what, all of that. And that is why I'm going to go back to his book. He paints the narrative of every single person involved in this and is able to, obviously it's his story, weave it into what he found out about each little person. But I'm just going to keep to like the gist of the story. So he had a business partner named Carlos and they had a cabinet and furniture fabrication shop. I'm not sure how you go from, like, music to that, but he was multi-faceted. okay? He was. (laughs) He had
1: his hands in a lot of little buckets, which is a smart
0: businessman. And truly, like, he won multiple streams of income. This is someone that came up from nothing. And when it came to Carlos, it seemed like he was kind of thinking that he was helping Carlos out. Carlos had a whole crew of people that apparently did beautiful work, but you know, were new to America or maybe didn't speak English all that well and it would be hard for them to get jobs. Like he was just thinking he was doing something really great. He also knew Carlos had some shady business dealings. But as I told you all before, if it's not his business, it's not his business. So as long as those two never cross lines, he didn't care, right? He's not the one doing it. So like,
1: go on, Carlos. Oh, I, I have a feeling I know where this is going.
0: But they had a legitimate shop and he and his wife were going to go meet up with Carlos to get some designs for an upcoming build. Carlos seemed to have been blowing him off, even kind of stalling a bit. And so when he finally got in touch with him, he drove with his wife in his car an hour away to Carlos's neighborhood to meet up with him. So he's sitting in his car waiting on the street for Carlos. Time is going by. No Carlos. More time is going by. No Carlos. Now, Sunshine, she is on her solo career journey right now. So she wanted to get back to the city, get to the recording studio. So she's pitching a little bit of a fit. Well, he's in his car waiting and all this time is passing. And finally, he notices another vehicle that's parked. And the driver was seeming to be crouched
1: down in the seat. An odd sight, obviously. Kind of like hiding from... Like this driver does not want to be seen.
0: Driver does not want to be seen. But the thing that made them notice the car initially is the brake lights were flashing. And they were like, what the hell's going on with this car? Because they don't see anyone in it. Oh. Do a little swoop-de-swoop drive-by see that someone's crouching on the floorboard, basically. So part of their body was hitting the brake light. So we have a bad
1: spooker. Like, he's not good at his job. You know, I don't think he's 007 Yeah. right?
0: (laughs) But then it hit him. Isaac had seen this car before. It had been behind him on the drive up. It also made him remember another thing that he found a little odd. Earlier, when he had dropped his car off for some routine maintenance, the dealership called and asked him to pick it up immediately. I first read this detail and I thought, yeah, that is a bit weird. We've all brought our cars in for an oil change or got a flat tire or whatever. And they'll give you a ring jingle and say like, hey, pick it up whenever you have an opportunity.
1: Or they're like, it'll be an actual two weeks and an extra (laughs) (laughs) $2,000. Yeah. But it's not like, come
0: right this second, pick up this car immediately. I've never had that happen. And quite frankly, before Lyft and Uber, I remember leaving my car at the dealership parking lot overnight. You just swing by in the morning on your friend's way to work and go pick it up. It was no problems. And that's when it hit him. He was being surveilled by the police. And they had to have placed something in his vehicle while it was at the dealership. Oh, like a tracker. Because how did this officer find him and follow him an hour away from his home to a place that until he had finally gotten a hold of Carlos, he didn't even know he was going to. It's not like this was like a routine part of his day.
1: I feel like once there's a tracker on your car, they have some things against you.
0: Yeah, it's not looking great, right? Except for the you know, brake lights. Beep, beep. Yeah, what an idiot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's not the smartest. So he figured in that moment, since he had not done anything wrong, they're after Carlos. Oh. And they're using him kind of bait to like get Carlos out. Now he has a bit of a struggle. Does he leave and not get involved himself? Or does he stay and warn Carlos? Because here's the problem. If he stays and tells Carlos, maybe Carlos can get away, no big deal, but the police are going to be like side-eyeing him, right? If he leaves and leaves Carlos like a sitting duck, basically, to pull up and then the police descend on him without warning him, anything like that, then these are two men that grew up in the streets, right? There's going to be some problems there. Loyalty is gone. You've now just hung out your friend to dry, basically. And do you look like a coward. Tough spot to be in. Absolutely. So he decides, I'm going to stay. And when Carlos pulled up behind him, he left his vehicle. You know, didn't want his wife involved in this. So he walks up to Carlos's truck. What the hell you got going on here, dude? There's a cop, you
1: know, look he over my... He keeps hitting his brake lights. Yeah. You <laughs> know, won't right. miss that card right like, there. <laughs> look over my left
0: shoulder. He's right over there. And saying, I think that there's something in my car too. Like, they're surveilling you. Carlos thanks him. And as he's walking back to his car, he's like, oh, wait, 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 Isaac. Don't you need those plans, right, for these cabinets that he was doing? And Isaac's like, oh, yeah. And he walks back up to the truck. Carlos again thanks him. And then tosses out of his window a tightly wrapped bundle to Isaac. A handoff right in front of that cop. Obviously, these are not cabinet plans, or we would not be talking about this case today. Maybe we would be in touring his mansion because he was on his way to some really big his things boots here. would be in the Hall of
1: Fame. Yeah, exactly. I can get over his boots. I
0: know. I want to see them. I was looking for pictures. I couldn't find any. But it's not obviously cabinet plans. Carlos had tossed him a wrapped bundle of cocaine, a large amount of cocaine, Isaac processes this as it's kind of in the air being handed off to him and then just drops it on the ground, right? He
1: wants nothing to do with this. And probably felt so betrayed in that moment. Like, I stood back for you to give you a warning. Right. And now you're tossing me cocaine. And he's thinking, like, I have no part in this shenanigans. It's like, a hot like I Absolutely
0: not. I don't want any part of this. I'm trying to be a good friend to you. You're the one doing some shady, shady stuff. I would be having some words, I think. But before he could get any words out... He's hearing sirens and cars screeching to a halt around him and the police officers in plain clothing shouting, get on the ground, get on the ground. Isaac has absolutely no clue. He's like, "Okay, well, maybe they're taking Carlos in. They saw this handoff. You know, we'll get this all figured out is probably his like just split second thought. It probably only was a split second thought because they pushed him to the ground, handcuffed him, ripped off his prized bedazzled boots. no. Not the boots. (laughs) I know. I don't know why they did that. Like, why are
1: they assholes?
0: Maybe because if he kicked him with boots on, it would hurt or something. I don't know. But a group of five or six officers proceeded to beat this man in the middle of the day. With his wife watching. In the middle of the street. And you were right. Yes. Another officer had dragged his wife, Sunshine, from the car and forced her to watch this brutal beating. He remembers officers just saying, not his face, not his face, he has to take mug shots. Like, they were just getting off on this.
1: The fact that they're even thinking about, we don't want anyone to see how badly we're beating him, so don't hit his face. But keep in mind here, too, like, it's
0: two things at once. Don't hit his face because then it's documented. But also, they felt so comfortable in assaulting this man, who, again... Innocent till proven guilty, right? But why are they so comfortable in the middle of the day? In like a neighborhood, right? Beating, yeah. And they are just brutally beating him, kicking him, punching him. They use plenty of racial slurs that I'm going to repeat here, but you can just about imagine. And when he was finally beaten, broken, they put him into the back of a police vehicle. I had to stop here because hearing his account, it almost sounds unbelievable. Unfortunately, we know that the police brutality is not the unbelievable part here right we see it every day especially with the rise of everyone having cameras and we know that this is something that is an ongoing huge problem and it's inexcusable so that's not what i'm referring to when i talk about unbelievable what i mean is if you've ever watched an episode of cops you know bad boy bad boy what what you gonna gonna do do? what you gonna do when when they come come for you you, bad boy yeah that (laughs) but that was pretty good (laughs) thank you (laughs) you too friend Anyway, we're getting off topic. So the thing that I found unbelievable about this is if you've watched that show, you've seen it on every episode. They search someone's car or their clothing and they find drugs. And what is the very first thing out of the person's mouth? Yeah, wasn't me. I didn't even know that was there. That that must have been my friend, Bob, Brian, Bob, Dwayne, whoever. Uh, Yeah, he borrowed my car. And oh, man, I'm going to be so mad at Bob for All taking my car right, right. that's like but it's not my defense it never works but they keep using it and that's the part i kind of found unbelievable about this when i was reading i'm like wait a minute your buddy just like threw you a bag of coke that seems a little weird because it also shows that he was in possession of it wouldn't you try to hide it or tuck it under your seat or whatever else and like speed away because these officers
1: are in plain clothing. there's not guns drawn at the vehicle Right. Isaac literally dropped him and was like, I do not want this. Yeah. Clear as day. So think of yourself
0: in a, like a jury's position or in anyone's position that's hearing this. You're going to go like, okay, so you go out of your way an hour to meet up with your buddy for cabinet plans. Right. It sounds pretty And you end up with, he just happens to throw out his window. You're not there for a drug deal. It wasn't just that you got caught. He threw out of his window a big chunk of cocaine, which costs a lot of money. This isn't crack cocaine we're even talking about here. This is like the good stuff. The pure. And he just throws it out to you. And you want me to believe that you had no part in this whatsoever. I wouldn't believe that. I wouldn't either. I told Annie, when I was letting you know that I was covering this case, that there is so many times during it
1: that if this was a movie script, You'd go, oh, they added too much. They had me at that and Now it's just, yeah, um, it's not believable. It's fake. Too many big events that are hard to believe happen.
0: A lot of coincidences, if you will. At this point, that's what he's claiming. Like, I have no involvement. In this. I don't understand what's happening. But unfortunately, this would only be the start of what would be a crazy cover up. The prosecution and conviction of a completely innocent man, one that would include numerous people from law enforcement, a judge, the Somerset, which is the county in New Jersey they were in at the time of the arrest, prosecutor named Nicholas Bissell, who not only prosecuted Isaac's case personally, which is very rare for a head prosecutor of the county. Normally, it's like assistant DA. How many times have you written the words assistant DA? So many. They're just the ones going like, okay, we got this case. Where are we at on this? And yet he took it under his wing, almost, yeah, to be very personally invested in this case. But he also set this entire thing into motion. Why? Basically, to further his power and career. He was very well loved in the community. He had all the power. But he did all this at the cost of the freedom and the life. Of a young black husband, a father to a little baby girl, and a good guy trying to help his friends out. Absolutely. He was completely an innocent man. But perhaps most importantly, a man that he completely and very ignorantly believed would be forgotten by our broken system, forgotten by the public. Not our Isaac Wright Jr. That would not be his story. So what were the charges that he was accused of? Isaac Wright Jr., Was arrested and charged with the following crimes: leading a narcotics trafficking network and conspiracy to to distribute cocaine. That's that kingpin. Possession of cocaine in a quantity of five ounces or more with intent to distribute. That's what got thrown at him. Possession of cocaine within a thousand feet of school property. Interesting because he didn't pick where he was meeting Carlos that day. Possession of cocaine. Possession of cocaine in a quantity of half an ounce or more with the intent to distribute, which seems like... Repetitive. A little repetitive here. Employing a juvenile in a drug distribution scheme and maintaining or operating a controlled, dangerous substance manufacturing facility.
1: That's a lot of charges.
0: It is a lot of charges, but only one of those has an automatic... The kingpin. Zach
1: Dun, dun, dun.
0: These charges were part of an 18-count indictment in which Isaac and 11 other individuals, including Carlos, were named as defendants, including his wife, Sunshine. They're all arrested, but he's the only one with this kingpin.
1: That's what I was about to ask. So they're all being arrested for, but he's being considered the leader.
0: Correct. He's the leader of this network of all these individuals that are apparently bringing in like $20 million a month and like these crazy high numbers based off drug sales. Again, I cannot encourage you enough to read his book because there is no way I could even begin to outline the story and how he paints this picture of each person that is involved in this. But also, he very like viscerally describes jail. Keep in mind, this is quite a while ago. We've had a lot of prison reform. It's not where it should be. But he describes the smells, what it was like to be with some of the other inmates. Like These are violent, sometimes criminals. Honestly, my ears kinda of perked up because there's a case that I'm going to be covering at some points on my list and he talked about his interaction with this guy who committed these horribly
1: brutal crimes. Oh, like Isaac gives his account of basically meeting up with like a serial killer or some kind of ooh.
0: It's just heartbreaking. Obviously, like child killers, rapists, like I don't care what you do. There's no punishment in my eyes that can ever, ever pay you back for what you did for those types of crimes. But we're also talking about nonviolent and things of that nature, and why we've come a long way, I think, in prison reform, hearing about the conditions in this jail were rough and it just seemed incredibly bleak and pretty hopeless. Prosecutor Bissell needed Isaac to be found guilty, and he did everything in his power to make sure that the other defendants were offered plea deals or lesser sentences for their willingness to testify against Isaac. Some of these people were like Isaac's friends. We talked about him, you know, having a juvenile in this drug distribution ring. This is like a teenager that is scared to death going, oh, okay,
1: what do I do here? He's seeing the inside of a courtroom, which is scary.
0: The inside of a jail. They're all being held in jail. Isaac was held on a $1
1: million bail. Back in 19, what is this, 81? 88, I believe. Oh, It's a lot of money. It's a lot of money today. But here's the
0: problem. He's a pretty successful guy. You only need 10% of bail. So he needs $100,000. He might have been able to scrape up that money, right? He has a lot of different assets. But when it's drugs that is the crime that you are being convicted of, any money that you have that was because of these criminal activities can be seized. Even if you haven't been found guilty, they can seize it while you're being held Oh. So he's sitting there going, I can get this money together probably, you know, it's going to hurt, but I can get this money together to get me out. But he's already thinking like this whole thing is bonkers. It's so corrupt. I don't even know if he's that corrupt at this point besides what the beating and things like that, like that's absolutely terrible. But he's just sitting there thinking like, I don't know what the hell's going.
1: Right. He's like, I have to play my cards right, but I don't know what cards to play and I don't know who to trust.
0: And he knew that they could seize that as assets that he acquired during these crimes being committed. And he's probably thinking about his wife and daughter. Yeah, so if he puts up that money, they can take it, and he's still sitting in jail, but he's $100,000 less rich. That would not be something I'd gamble on, so there he sat. In an already stacked system, Prosecutor Bissell was making sure that there was no way that Isaac would ever return to his life on the outside. Isaac met with lawyer after lawyer for his defense. I think it was upwards of 10. But time and again, he would try to share his story, wanting someone to help him figure out how this all happened in the first place and to look into why this was happening. But also, why is the prosecutor, like, why does he have such a hard-on for Isaac? But all they would do is tell him to take a plea deal. That's the best advice they would give him. Just plead guilty, and hopefully they could get the sentence down to 20 years if he would go to trial.
1: 20 years, that's so much. He was 28 at
0: the time, so he would be a middle-aged man when he got out. No one was listening. In Isaac's words from his book, quote, If I had waited around for someone to save me, I'd be waiting my whole life. Unless I took the reins of this thing myself, I was going to die in prison. If that was my destiny, then I had to die fighting. The desperation of that equation kept me up most nights. I would never find a gladiator, so I had to become him. Powerful. And terrible that this is what this man was facing. Isaac filed a motion... And with everyone telling him that this was the stupidest thing he could do, he was absolutely guaranteeing that he would lose his case, he filed a motion to represent himself pro se. I'm shaking my head no.
1: No, 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 If you're not familiar, Annie, do you know what pro se means? No, but I know the idea of representing yourself in a court is not ideal. That is
0: pro se. It means that you are going to represent yourself. The judge constitutionally can't deny him this right. But he did take some precautions to make sure that Isaac understood, like, this is a terrible idea.
1: Like, you, you did not go to law school, exactly.
0: Isaac. And I, I mean, I was trying to read motions and all this crap. And my head was, I'd take a Tylenol. <laughs> <laughs> legitimately hurt. My brain was fried. So the judge did make sure to give him like some mental health tests and make sure that he had the capacity to understand this. And maybe that he knew exactly what he was getting into. Like, are you sure this is what this is going to look like? Well, even just the intellectual capability of understanding what was happening inside the court. And who he was going up against. People who had been at law school for years. Yeah, the head prosecutor, who's for some reason taken this case on as his own instead of just enjoying that he has made the head prosecutor spot and basically should just be like running admin.
1: I picture like a David and Goliath situation, like a really big prosecutor than like an innocent man who's trying to go up there and defend himself.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's a very great metaphor because that's kind of what it was like. So the judge made sure that he understood the risks, did this test, and I I got a little giggle because Isaac was like, I was so offended by that i built myself from the ground up like i knew yeah but i also understand why the judge is doing this i don't think the judge in this case like please don't go like oh that was nice of him he's not the best guy guys but i do understand why they take these precautions to make sure that someone is of the intellectual intelligence to at least attempt this wild card but he had to say okay you pass all these tests i guess you're gonna do this But he did add a condition to it, and that condition was he had to have a defense attorney as his co-counsel so that if he got stumbled up or whatever else, the co-counsel could step in or could help explain things to him. And Isaac in his head was
1: like, fine, whatever on paper you want to say, but this man ain't doing squat for me. Because is Isaac going to question like Carlos and everything? How, how does that work if you're representing yourself? Or is he just saying, I want to take the stand? Oh, yeah, stand? You, get, you get to cross-examine everybody. Okay,
0: I'm intrigued. Mm-hmm. So our man Isaac is not just going to be like, well, let's cross our fingers and hope for the best. He started reading every law book. He studied around the clock. And I am not exaggerating when I say that, guys. Even offering to the warden when they lost their librarian, he goes to the warden and says, I'll be the jail librarian for free. If you just keep this library open and the warden's like, all right, buddy, whatever. So this kind of worked for Isaac in two different ways. Obviously, he began to form his defense, but it also kept him out of his jail cell. During this time before prison reforms and pushes for more humane conditions, he was in a cell with maybe one, maybe two, maybe three other people, depending on the time and how crowded it was. In his little jail cell, there sat a hole in the ground that served as a toilet. I picture a dungeon.
1: I'm picturing like wet cement walls, dark, murky rats going everywhere, the smell. Well, he talks very candidly about the smell because this
0: hole was just basically one long pipe that ran throughout the corridor, holes where they would have to do some very interesting balancing acts to defecate. And then they had to figure out how to plug that hole up so the smells of the other cellmates or the people, you know, three cells down from you wasn't wafting into your place.
1: You can't even go to the bathroom in peace. You know, that's... You just got your butt dangling over a hole. Hoping you don't fall into it. Ugh. Well, no. It wasn't that was... big. Well, let's go into so much detail. We're really was... going down a rabbit hole with the, with the dungeon it... Let's not holes. go down
0: any holes. <laughs> it was very gross. The doors were open to the cells during the day. The prisoners could come and go from their room, but just down the corridors. There was no common area. There was no yard as we know it now to go outside, get Play some fresh air. Lift some weights. Lift some weights, whatever the case might be. None of that was happening. That would be enough to drive anyone. Absolutely insane. To not have access to fresh air, any sense of purpose in your day. I've made the joke before, I like to earn my rest. Well, how do you do that when you're just walking down like a bland, gross hallway all day long and then you don't know who the hell these people
1: are that are next to you or what they're capable of? I feel like you're constantly in fight or flight mode. Like your body probably can just never relax because you have no control over your environment and i think that's well
0: and this is all new to him mm-hmm. he really hadn't gotten in any trouble before so he's just walking in like ah so becoming the librarian gave him purpose and it kept his mind busy which is so important in these terrible situations that he's in to not only be thinking about what's going on around him but he knew he had to be smart about this that he could no longer trust anyone because everyone seemed to be against him he even went to the lengths of creating a code and writing all the notes about his case in that code, so that if they had gotten taken or confiscated and turned over to the prosecutor, he wouldn't be able to read them.
1: I feel like he's so smart.
0: Isaac quickly became aware of the schemes and lies being told about him to the press, all from, guess who, the lead prosecutor, Bissell. The press were running stories about how Bissell single-handedly formed this detective team that recovered money and drugs from Isaac's home. They took down the kingpin funny that never actually happened Isaac found out that there was inmates put specifically in his ward and told to mess with him to intimidate him in exchange for special privileges or leniency on their sentences again all of this was promised by prosecutor Bissell so two years goes by he has been arrested he's sitting in jail he's reading all these law books and it's time that he finally gets his day in court And witness after witness falsely testified against him. Yep, he's the boss. He told me to do this. He's the one that, you know, runs the numbers. One said he took a bus down to Mexico to do a drug run. And Isaac is sitting there like, wait, the prosecutor is saying that I make like millions of dollars. Why would I take public transportation across the border (laughs) with with all my drugs? Like that just stuff didn't make sense. To speak to his character, though, I will say that Isaac encouraged some of these people to do what they needed to do, mostly the women that had been arrested because they wanted them to return to their families. But even the four officers who testified against him weren't just your run-of-the-mill cops. They were all directly employed by Prosecutor Bissell and worked at the Attorney General's office. Shady. Isaac tried and failed to bring in witnesses and evidence to support his case, but was constantly turned down by the judge. The burden of proof that this prosecutor had to prove was so low. They didn't even have to have a minimum amount of drugs sold or confiscated. They didn't have to prove he distributed the drugs. They only had to have at least two witnesses say that Isaac acted as the leader of their drug ring. That's it. That's all the evidence they needed. Correct. Now, they said they had all the surveillance tapes. I mean, it's just crazy. Isaac even got an expert to come in and proved in court that the surveillance audio that they had used was absolutely doctored. Like, little splice here, take that word here, put it together, make it sound bad. So yes, he was right about that. He found out later while he was doing research through and going through the discovery on the case, they had indeed gone to the dealership and installed like tracking devices and all that in his car. So his gut instinct was Spot dead on, on the money. Anyways. The expert proved that the tapes were completely doctored and not reliable. The prosecutor didn't even bring in his own witness or cross-examine this expert because he knew it didn't matter.
1: He has the two witnesses.
0: I have enough witnesses. All right, yeah, expert, I know you're right. That doesn't look the best for us, but it doesn't matter to this case. Again, they just need these witnesses who quote-unquote worked with Isaac to agree that he was the head man in charge. When the jury went to deliberate, it seemed that they were struggling to get a unanimous answer, but when they did return, they had found Isaac Wright Jr. guilty on all counts. Isaac truly couldn't believe it. So he did what you constitutionally are allowed, and you can poll each jury member. So they have to say out loud to you, yes, I found you guilty. I
1: did not know that you could do that.
0: Yeah, and you have to go one by one. And thank God he did that, because one brave woman, the only black person in that jury, did what was right, and she said she did not believe he was guilty because it just wasn't making sense to her. But, you know, she can't elaborate that on. So she just said, no. Instead of declaring a mistrial, as they should have, remember I said this judge isn't so great himself, should have stopped it right there and said, mistrial, we need a new jury. We're going back to jury selection. Here we go. But he was also in Bissell's pocket. So what does he do? The judge forces them back into their room to be sequestered and tells them very directly Don't come out until you have your judgment. Now, it doesn't take a whole lot to figure out that he is telling that one woman, get on board. Yeah, and shut your mouth. She would later say that she was very, very intimidated, even by...
1: The other jurors, probably. Yeah.
0: When the jury returned, they had found Isaac Wright Jr. guilty on all counts, yet again. He was sentenced to life in prison per the Kingpin Law, but an additional 72 years for all of the other convictions. So Isaac Wright Jr. was basically sentenced to carry out the remainder of his life in prison, never to reunite on the outside with his little girl or his family, all of his siblings. He would die there. So he goes right back to work. He's like, oh, absolutely not. I see what they're doing now. I don't think it sounded from the book that he really expected to win. I was going to ask from the book, was it like he did a good job, though? He did. Apparently, he did a really great job as much as he
1: could. Going up against the head prosecutor. Not
0: even that. The judges kept denying him access to things. Oh. So it's like, oh, I have this witness. No, you can't call that witness. Well, I want to, you know, do this. No, we can't do that. We and the judge technically this. can can do that, right? Yeah, they can say you can put whatever into a case or, you know, not allow it. So he goes right back to work. He studied law in prison for the next five years and used his knowledge to work with a prison organization called Inmate Legal Assistance, where he acted as a paralegal for other inmates.
1: Very cool.
0: Incredible. He's he's like doing a lot of really good work. If someone had an infraction while incarcerated, there Isaac was in his little suit, standing up and literally acting as their lawyer, not in a court trial,
1: but in these smaller like infraction cases. So for him, it was more of like he goes up to the prison board. Right. With, like, the warden and a couple of the, and he's, like, representing the. Exactly. Okay. okay.
0: But he also would get involved with some other people's cases depending on who they were
1: and what they did, right?
0: There's some people that he was like,
1: I'm not helping you out, bro. (laughs) You're guilty, bro.
0: Not even that, but just, like, these despicable crimes. Like, he knows where to draw the line. You know, like, I'll share a table with you, but that's where this friendship ends. No, thank you. But he started really looking into some other people's cases and would write, like, motions for them to give to their defense attorneys. So he's acting as a lawyer, but kind of, like, behind the scenes. It's, it's incredible. And we all knew that this man was going to appeal. Of course he was, right? He outlines throughout the book that he had to practice patience, waiting for more information. At this point, he has now been in there for seven-ish years, little less, he needed to gain the trust of the warden to gain the respect of other inmates through his representation of them so that he was safe in prison and could focus on his case. This is a dark-skinned black man sitting with like the Aryan Brotherhood, and he would say like some would get up and walk away, but no one would test him because they respected what he was doing, even if they couldn't respect like the color of his skin. So because he himself was obviously judged and it was assumed who he was based on the color of his skin... He has now developed this network in prison where that doesn't matter because he's helping everyone out with their cases as long as it's not, you know, a violent thing. So it was really interesting to see like
1: how he used education as power, I think is the best way to put it. That is super cool. I I see what you mean this should be a movie. Because I I can picture it in my head, him walking around to the tables, sitting there, just keeping the peace kind of. Well, he also said he was testing. Like if you like sat down
0: in one area and you notice like some shiftiness or whatever, It was like, okay, I need to help someone in this community so that I'm safe. Street smart and book smart. Yeah, it's crazy. But I think the underlying part of it is like instead of using violence to gain respect, he literally used education, which speaks volumes considering the people he's gaining respect from probably are used to violence as their only way of gaining any notoriety or respect. I just went off on a tangent. Okay. (laughs) So he not only needed to appeal his case, but he needed the time and Basically, the insider knowledge to prove that Prosecutor Bissell and those doing his bidding throughout the legal process were not only corrupt, but that the case against him was one giant orchestrated conspiracy against everyone who has all this respect innately or through their job or through the color of their skin. They demand respect, right or wrong. That's what he was up against. And here he is sitting there being like, it's all made up. Yeah, None it's a of losing the- battle for him. Yeah, it just sounds impossible. Basically, this was a conspiracy to let one man take the fall for the benefit and power of one prosecutor. He needed precedent, something to point to during his appeal. Are you familiar with what precedent is? So when you're in court, let's say that you have a case that the law says, God, I'm not a lawyer. Okay, the law says you did this bad thing, you get five years. But you have maybe like a self-defense claim or something like that that makes it kind of a gray area. Then precedent is when you point back to a case where it was similar to yours and the ruling was different than
1: like what the law says. Oh, I do know that term. I use that term like you're setting a new precedent or whatever. Right. Exactly.
0: So it's like, oh, this has been done before. And I'm going to refer to when this was done to help me out to show that I should also be let off the hook for this because of this gray area. Got it. But where do you find legal precedent if you're trying to overturn a case where he's the first person arrested for this? So again, you'd be patient and you create the precedent. How does he do that? Well, he found another case of a man incarcerated in the same jail that also was arrested under the kingpin law. He might have been the first, but he wasn't the last. And he began offering this guy's defense team help to attack the jury instructions during the case. Here's what I mean by that. Stay with me, guys. I'm going to go into some legal jargon here, but stay with me. I'll break it down as, like, simply as I can or as simply as I understand it, which is elementary level. All right, so he brings up all these points that we've discussed. The ridiculously low burden of proof that it was in direct contrast to the law's intent of who should be charged and convicted as a drug kingpin. If the law is made to take these big, high, powerful drug dealers out of there and hopefully get all the people, if you think of a pyramid scheme, yeah <laughs> here's the kingpin on top, and then you have all the people connected underneath. Mm-hmm. You need to get the guy on top, right? That's the one that's making all the decision. But yet, when making this law, it's not in alignment with what they are requiring to prove such that he's a kingpin. Does that make sense? Yeah. So he brings up low-burden proof. He brings up that like this law is in direct contrast to what the
1: intent of the law was. He's basically saying, like, I support the law. Sure. But I'm not it. Not only am... Well, this isn't about him. He's doing this for another
0: guy. The other guy's defense team is like, yeah, actually, this makes sense. Like, if you're going to prove someone should get a life sentence, even if it's their first arrest... We need more to prove that this is who it is, and even the jury should have more education on what they're looking for, of what a kingpin is, because that was
1: never explained to them. It just is a big kind of scary word. It's just kind of like a fun buzzword. It is. Yeah.
0: And guess what? In the case of the state versus Alexander, the defense that Isaac had laid out worked. Not only did it work, but it changed the kingpin
1: law. Wow. Wow. That's impressive. So not
0: only did he create precedent, he created a change in law from inside prison.
1: I feel like people try and do that today, and it takes them, I mean, it took him a long time to learn that, but it takes years to get a law changed.
0: Right. And it's not like they said, okay, no more kingpin law. They just changed some a little- We'll tweak it. They made amendments to it to make sure that the jury knew what they were talking about, that there was different burdens of proof. So it's his time. He has created the precedent that he so desperately needed- And it was time to use that new law and its instructions around the burden of proof and jury instructions to get his appeal. He got it. His life sentence was immediately turned over based on the law's change. But he still had 72 years for all the other crimes. So the kingpin law, they're like, yep, you're right. This doesn't line up. But buddy, you still have all these other drug charges. So you're still going to be sitting here for a while. So what does he do? Time to go after Bissell.
1: Oh, he's going for the big dog. Take him down, Isaac. I believe in you. Pretty much everyone else.
0: He had gathered evidence not only of how Bissell had directly manipulated witnesses into providing false testimony, but this man was shady as all hell, even outside of the courtroom. He had a gas station that was co-owned, so he was one owner, other owner. One of the arresting brother's officers, like, hello, conflict of interest there. Yeah, you would think. But it doesn't even stop there. He had lied about profits and sales in order to manipulate the gas companies into giving him gas rebates. He wasn't claiming any of the cash from his store to the IRS.
1: A lot of fraud going on.
0: Lots of fraud. Bissell,
1: we're looking at you.
0: You guys, you have to read the book to find out how he got some of this evidence because I don't want to spoil that part. But like, I'll just say karma is incredible. And it came back to serve him very well because someone who he helped early in life ended up Finding out the dirt, dirt, nasty on Mr. Bissell. I love that. Bissell even threatened to plant drugs on one of the gas delivery drivers to his little gas station because the driver had mentioned the discrepancy from the sales and these rebates. And he's like, you say one more thing and I'm going to have you arrested and there will be drugs in your
1: pool. What an evil person to use your power like that. Absolutely terrible. So wrong.
0: Did I forget to mention, he also skimmed some for himself, a lot for himself when cash was confiscated from a crime. Scene. That
1: does not surprise me. This guy seems so sleazy.
0: At one point they even said like he got one guy off by having him give him like 20 acres of land that he wanted. It's just I mean, he was the worst. This man was dirty through and through. He had made his way to the top not on his own merit, but by using whatever power he had in that role at the time to manipulate and bribe those around him. Even sending an innocent man to jail in order to gain the notoriety and power in the press. Of being the prosecutor that was making the streets of New Jersey safer. So, armed with this evidence and some of the witnesses, and in the original case, being willing to now recant their statements and explain in detail how Bissell had bribed them, Isaac filed a motion with the trial court for a post conviction relief or PCR hearing. I had no idea what that meant, but Google tells me it just means that when someone's convicted of a crime, this is when you can ask the court to throw out the judgment or the sentence. Usually it's when it's based on new evidence. Got it. So now we're in the year 1996. Isaac was granted this hearing, and one by one he exposed all of the police and prosecutor Bissell's dirty deal. And he had one more ace in his pocket. This man knows how to read people, apparently, because he remembered that during the police officer's initial testimonies, only one of the men seemed to stick out to him as not being comfortable with the lies he was telling. He's watching all these guys just spout off this nonsense about him. But one seemed like he was kind of struggling. Yeah, he was a struggling little bit to put more an innocent
1: man behind bars.
0: So maybe it was intuition or just a good read and body language. He figured his best bet was to try to get detective James Dugan to
1: confess. That he lied on the stand and that Bissell. And this was- is a
0: detective. Oh. A in action hasn't retired. He is still part of the force. And he is also one of Bissell's. Detectives. Remember, all of these officers work directly under him. So his only shot is to hope that this police officer is going to go against the testimony of his fellow officers.
1: Living on a prayer.
0: Well, his prayer was answered because Isaac was right. After some genius rapid fire questioning, really hammering every point of Detective Dugan's career like his accomplishments, his moral standing in the community how much pride he seemed to take in being a trusted and honorable member of the force, Isaac brought out that card. What was that card? A memo that had been discovered that was written by Prosecutor Bissell to the arresting officers, basically telling them what to write in their reports about the arrest and the search and seizure of Isaac's home and what they found. And Detective Dugan, he broke. Because there on that memo, he had signed an agreement. Bissell was an idiot and wrote, when you have completed this task, sign your name and pass it to like, I don't know why they did it this way, to be honest. It's like an in-office memo. Like, you, could, you think you could just ask. But he wanted to make sure they all had the same story. And it was like, okay, when you're done and you've completed this, then you give it to the
1: next one under you. It's like very elementary school. Pass a note. Yeah. Pass a note. Pass a note. Yeah, pass
0: this over to Annie. Don't yeah.
1: read it. Right. Uh, idiot. And
0: actually, Isaac had found this months earlier when Bissell kept refusing the court's request on Isaac's behalf that he have access to discovery. So finally, Isaac petitioned the court of like, I'm going to the prosecutor's office. I'm leaving jail. I'm going to the office. I'm not going to bother him, but just give me access for one day to make copies and all that. And that that memo was kept. Well, he walked into the room. All the boxes are unmarked. They like to basically try to screw him over and just filled with paper. And
1: he just so happened to find this tiny little memo
0: in a stack,
1: like a needle in a haystack, basically. (laughs) Can you imagine the face on Isaac whenever he saw that? He's like, I hit the jackpot.
0: Well, not even that. Can you imagine the face on Bissell when he's like sitting there like, oh, Oh, shit. (laughs) So Detective Dugan had signed this memo. He knew he had signed this memo. And he breaks down. And to his credit, he apparently was overcome with emotion. And said that this had been so heavy on his heart. And he didn't stop there. He just kept talking. He started to not only confess to his own misconduct, but to all of Bissell's bad dealings and the conspiracy that Bissell had created to ensure Isaac's conviction. So he's like, I know about the man that he sent into prison to intimidate him. You know, like, this is the most wrong thing I've ever seen done. I'm so sorry. He's just
1: sobbing. Meanwhile, Bissell's looking for the closest emergency exit.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I think you'd take a window at that point. And with that, after seven years of being incarcerated, having the legal system let him down in so many ways and so many times, and then taking it upon himself as the only person he could trust at this point to get fair representation, Isaac Wright Jr. was a free man.
1: That is incredible. Talk about never giving up. I understand why your it pep- doesn't stop. Oh, it does Oh no. I get your pep talk in the beginning, though, because like this makes me want to go like do something amazing. Well, it didn't stop
0: there because he gets out of jail and he's like, you know what? I found my calling now. I need to help other people. So Isaac enrolled in college and completed his bachelor degree in two thousand and two, and then went on to finish his law school. Graduated from Thomas Edison State University in two thousand and seven. Unfortunately, this was a pretty new territory for the board. And Isaac spent the next nine years having every aspect of his life investigated by the New Jersey Bar Committee to ensure that he was a man of good character and standing so that he could practice law. Because they
1: were like, wait, but you were in jail. Like, You must have done something wrong. They wanted to make sure that they were letting the right people in. like, To to practice, yeah, Yeah, to be a lawyer.
0: Isaac Wright Jr. is the first and the only person in the entirety of the United States and all of its history to have been sentenced to life in prison, secure his own release and exoneration, and then be granted to practice law by the very same and in the very same court that had condemned him in the first place is where he was sworn in. That is incredible. I just, I just, I love it because as I was researching this, it felt like an infomercial of like, (laughs) But wait, there's more. Like, Isaac is the, but wait, there's more, but only about his life. He's not, like, forcing you by, like, four things of toothpaste. (laughs) No assing on TV. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. right. Isaac announced his run for mayor of New York in 2020. He's unstoppable, right? But unfortunately, he lost the Democratic primary in 2021, which I don't know this man's politics. I'm not going to say if I agree with him or disagree with him. But I do know that at the very least, there would have been some major reforms in the New York jails, things of that nature. So in that way, I feel like we missed out. I don't know about his political beliefs yeah, yeah. But like big picture, he definitely
1: would have had some changes
0: happen. Yeah. And it's someone in office who personally knows the struggle of a system that historically and continuously still oppresses people just because of the way they look. Like, oh, we can pin it on him. Everyone's going to believe it. Doesn't he look like the bad black man down the street? It's just bullshit. So he ran for mayor just two years ago. Yeah. Wow. He's killing it. So now Isaac is a full-time lawyer and public speaker. And in a chance meeting with 50 Cent. My seventh grade self is geeking out right <laughs> now. Like,
1: yeah, candy shop.
0: He ended up talking to 50 Cent about his story. And 50 was so inspired by it. They created the show on Isaac's life that many of you probably have seen and didn't know is a true story. It was on ABC. It's called For Life. I haven't seen it, but I'm going to go home and watch it and buy the book. I'm a fan of Isaac Wright. I've only watched one episode and I wanted to stop because I didn't want to get confused if they like embellish something. And I know in that series, they do go into like other people's cases and how he was representing them. So I didn't want to get my facts mixed up with you know TV, but it's all based on. And so what about the people that set all this bullshit and effery into motion?
1: I was about to ask about Carlos. Was Carlos cabinet company that he co-owned with was that corrupt like were they funneling drugs the Company was
0: fine but he um, and isaac knew he had his own little side hustle you're gonna have to read the book to understand how i would be here for two hours telling you how this all convoluted like they basically knew who they could arrest and before they did that they were like give this guy over Got and it. so they had this all in the background this plan with the police so he'd get off on a lesser sentence. Isaac would take the fall. But again, read the book because I couldn't even possibly try to describe how like twisty and scheming this is. Officer Dugan, who confessed and blew this conspiracy wide open, he did confess to official misconduct to avoid prison time. So he was not sent to jail. As for Prosecutor Bissell, he was investigated and all his shady and corrupt dealings came to light. FBI got involved, the IRS got involved, because he's lying about, you know, gas and taxes and all this craziness. He was charged and convicted of over 30 felony counts, including tax evasion, mail fraud, and abuse of power. So he's sitting at home on house arrest. He's got his little ankle monitor on, you know, beep, beep, you gotta stay home, awaiting his sentencing. He's sitting watching the TV when the news broke that Isaac had gotten freed and Detective Duggan had confessed. He clips his ankle bracelet and flees. So now police have to put out this like all points bulletin. We have to get this man. Like we're not sure what he's capable of. Like this is a desperate man, right? Police ended up tracking him down by his cell phone to a hotel in Las Vegas. Oh, he
1: went across the country.
0: Oh, yeah. He was like, "Uh, I'm out of here. Goodbye. And he had the money and resources to do it, right? They find him in this hotel, and after a 10-minute standoff in the hotel room, it's reported, I don't know this part for sure, it is reported that he told the responding officers, I just can't do 10 years, which would be the max for all of these 30 offenses. Just keep that in mind, let's hold this thought. But after a 10-minute standoff, he pulled a gun on himself and committed suicide. I'm not obviously going to comment on his suicide because, yes, he did terrible things, but I'm sure that he had a family that loved him, and so I'm just going to, like, we're going to leave that alone. Yep, I'd support that. However, I find it so deplorable, so cowardly, that this man was comfortable sending an innocent man, a 28-year-old at that time, had his whole life ahead of him, who was making a way for himself. He was literally self-made. Besides Star Search helping him out, like, giving him a little boost. But he still had to dance his little ass off to get on to Star Search. And then he's, like, traveling around. Like, like he did it all on his own. This is, like, the American dream, right? He has a wife, a young daughter. And he was comfortable throwing away this man's dignity, his rights, his life for his own gain. But when Bissell is facing potentially 10 years, and let's be honest, as a white man with privilege and power, he would probably be in, like, the Martha Stewart of jails, right? It's not a violent crime. He would have been, he'd probably like be playing like cricket or something, you know, but he was willing to let Isaac go to jail and die in jail, ruin his entire family, his relationship with his daughter, all these things. And yet he couldn't stand the heat of possible, maybe possibly
1: going to jail for 10 years. It's because he knew what the inside of those jails looked like. Oh, That's the truth. But what's wild to me and stands out is he had like 30 felonies and he was only going to get 10 years maximum. Non-violence. Okay, that makes sense. And I think it shows how strict the kingpin law was because that was what life. But the other thing, because I, I kind of thought that too. And I was like,
0: doesn't make any sense. And so I kind of sat with it for a while. And I don't, please don't quote me on this, guys. But if I think about drugs, I go, that's not violent. That's what I was about to ask.
1: But Is it a yes, violent? Yes, it is. Okay.
0: Think of how many people overdose on drugs. Think about what kind of, like I talked about in New York during that time. Sex crimes are going up. Domestic crimes are going up abuse murders robbing to like get something to you know get money to get this crack cocaine. a lot of violence it's causing even if you're not the person pulling the gun it's causing violence
1: that's so true and then
0: you add in just overdoses so it's violent you're just not the person that's standing behind pulling the trigger if you're the kingpin you're sitting on top of the mountain watching
1: everyone else crumble around you that makes way more sense cuz i was like Okay, thirty felonies and ten years maybe, and then you look at the kingpin law, which is I get there trying to clean up New York, but it threw me off. But that does make sense. Thanks for explaining it. Well, that's what I'm guessing. But you learned that in all your y'all, all your fancy lawyer books, Elise. I did not. That <laughs> is just my educated guess because I had the same question in my head. As much as I hate, he spent that long in prison. What a great outcome for him, and yeah. he's really turned. To, I mean. He didn't have to turn his life around. That's the whole But he, he could have been like a bitter man who oh, absolutely. was just angry about this. But instead, he, he takes all of that anger and all that frustration and puts it into something really amazing.
0: Yeah. I knew it sounded cheesy at the beginning when I said I have like a not a trigger warning, but an inspiration warning. I am telling you, I have been walking around since I studied this case and been like, I have not done enough with my day to day.
1: And even texting me like, I'm so excited to tell you. And this. It has been weeks you put into this case. I mean, you put a lot of time into it.
0: I did. And then I also put a lot of thought into what more I could be doing with my life. (laughs) What should I do next in my career? I think you should become an author. Maybe someday. But friends, as always, we want to hear what you think about this case. Please watch the show. Support his book. He does public speaking. Go listen to this man speak. He is so well-spoken. I just, my, my everything goes off to this man who literally... Overcame every obstacle that we as a country have tried very hard to make sure that he couldn't, help, and he did it. And then he went and helped others. Like, okay, I'm done gushing. Also, if Isaac, if you ever hear this, like you're my hero. Okay. Anyway, now She's I'm done gushing. I am, I am as you should be. Girling. Well, friends, as always, you can find us on Instagram at a case of the Sunday Scaries. And if you would like to support this podcast, please check out our Patreon page where you can get exclusive content early and ad free. We thank you so much for joining us, but as always, until then.